Amen. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we thank you for uh, delivering the, the faith, the doctrine of salvation, and the direction for our lives uh, through your word in scripture. We pray that you would help us to understand it and to uh, believe it and to act upon it. Uh, we pray that you would bless this time of study for our edification and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to begin a new series, um, and that would be a, a series on the Westminster Confession of Faith. A new series on the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is the confession of faith of um, our church, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, of uh, Presbyterian churches really throughout the world. And today I want to really give an introduction, an overview of the, the whole document and its historical context and its use today. Um, and then next week, begin with the first chapter. Uh, my plan is to take maybe uh, one or two or maybe three lessons on each chapter um, so that it'll take roughly a year. Uh, or so, similar to the Bible survey class that uh, we looked, we went through last year. And uh, I want to begin, though, by reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. There Paul wrote to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God has given, uh, proclaimed his truth. He's uh, revealed the truth to uh, us in scripture. And he's also established the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth to, uh, to proclaim it, to make it known, to vindicate it, to defend it against error, to clarify, um, to interpret, and to apply it. Um, this is not to say that the church is infallible, but that it is a help and is a, a divinely ordained help in government uh, to uh, guide and shepherd uh, his people. And confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, is one uh, instrument uh, in that work. And it is a, a good summary of the teachings of the Bible on a variety of topics, a system of doctrine that holds together and uh, therefore makes a very uh, good document for not only investigating this like a historical document to know what people believed in the past, but for studying scripture uh, itself uh, topically uh, in, uh, by going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, Let's begin by just doing a little bit of an overview of the document. We have 33 chapters in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, it's in the Blue Trinity hymnals here that we have throughout the church. I uh, believe you all have copies at home as well. And uh, if not, there's also an app for that. There's uh, lots of ways to access the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
Uh, But there are uh, 33 chapters. The first one is on Scripture, uh, which is important. Without uh, Scripture, we're going to be at loss as how to proceed. Scripture is the source for our theology. Uh, It is, as the Confession says, uh, the rule of faith and life. Uh, The word rule and the word canon is the same word. You know, it's, it's the rule. It's the uh, authoritative standard and source of our uh, beliefs about God and our duty to God. And so, uh, those two things would be faith and life. Uh, so, so, the first chapter discusses scripture and then begins with God. A chapter on who he is, chapter on his eternal decree, you know, what he has decreed from before time began, and then his works of creation and providence, how he carries those out in time. Then uh, in chapters 6 through 9, it describes the need and provision for salvation, how man has fallen, how God has made a covenant with man and established a relationship with man on, uh, through means of covenant, first with man before he fell and then with man after he fell, covenants of works and grace. Then Christ the mediator, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then uh, free will, which the confession affirms, although it describes the fourfold state of man and his free will, uh, whether it is able to, uh, to do good or not, and how it's renewed by grace, how it's totally um, depraved before that, and of course has that uh, state in glory in which it will only uh, choose to do good. Then it describes um, God's work of salvation, how God applies this salvation to his people. Uh, Redemption applied in chapters 10 through 13. Effectual calling, uh, part of that we would call regeneration, you know, where God uh, calls us not only externally with the word, but applying that word with power and the Holy Spirit uh, to bring us out of darkness into light and, and to respond with faith and repentance, which we'll get to in a minute. Effectual calling, um, and then justification, the declaration of our righteousness, adoption, the, the right of children, and sanctification, our renewal uh, by grace, being conformed to his image progressively through this life. Uh, then it describes man's reception of salvation. So, kind of the, going along the, the same lines here, but from the perspective of how we uh, respond and uh, participate in this work, um, that because of his grace, we have uh, faith. There's a chapter on faith. Repentance, a chapter on repentance. Uh, good works, which is um, the result of, of sanctification and perseverance in grace, and then assurance of grace and salvation. Um, do, do we know that we are saved and are, are confident of that? Can we have that assurance? <clears throat> then chapters 19 through 24 uh, describe direction for life, chapter on the law of God, chapter on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, uh, one on worship, one on oaths and vows, um, one on the civil magistrate, and one on marriage. And then you could say that the following chapters after that are also direction for life, but focus on on the church, sacraments, church discipline, and government, uh, chapters 25 through 31. And then the last two chapters are on eschatology, 
Uh, that is, the, the last things. So, the state of man after death, uh, the, the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment, uh, and included in that, of course, then the final state uh, of man uh, following from the last judgment. And so we go from the very beginning to end. We go from eternity past, we go to eternity future, you know, the, the everlasting state. We, we go through the whole uh, story of redemption and uh, the, the earth and how we live in the life now. And throughout all these chapters, it's describing the truth and also it's often guarding against various errors and wrong beliefs concerning these doctrines as well. Uh, any questions about the, the general content here of the, the confession of faith? Um, there's a lot, a, lot of he- a lot ahead of us, so we're, I look forward to uh, digging into these things. The second point I want to bring up is the historical context of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This year is the 380th anniversary of the calling of the Westminster Assembly. Um, the Westminster Assembly produced the Westminster Confession. Uh, they're called Westminster because they met at Westminster Abbey in, in London. And uh, the Westminster Assembly was called in 1643. But a little background to that. The Westminster Assembly was uh, interacting with both the Church of Scotland and the Church of England. The Church of Scotland had been established in the 1500s as a Presbyterian church on the Genevan model through the influence of John Knox and others who had been exiles in Geneva uh, who had come to Scotland and and they have a Scottish confession of faith and the Book of Common Order and other documents that had been established there uh, for, for decades at this point. The Church of England had a more rocky road. I mean, the Scottish Church had a rocky road, but the English Church was kind of all over the place at first. You had Henry VIII bringing them out of, of Rome, but still not really different in doctrine. Then you had Edward VI being very reformed, a young king. And then he died, and Queen Mary tried to bring them back to Rome quite violently. And then she died, and Queen Elizabeth uh, established the Church again as Protestant. Uh, but, but not quite maybe as far as some wanted to go with it. They, they kept bishops as those who were governing the church. The Book, the book of Common Prayer um, was uh, a little more uh, structured and specific uh, than the Genevan uh, liturgy was. And, uh, but she was hoping for some kind of moderate course that would remain stable after all of that back and forth and trying to hold the church together. But they did have Calvinist theology. Uh, the 39 articles were regarded as a reformed statement of faith. Uh, the book of homilies were quite uh, reformed. Um, but there was enough in church government and worship where the Puritans would want to go a little bit further in their reform. Well, after her came James I, and he wanted to introduce more Anglican practices in Scotland to try to unite the two. And so there was conflict with the Presbyterians in Scotland. Um, his son, Charles I, became more aggressive, both in England and Scotland, to try to move it, not only the Scottish church to where the English church was, but both of them a little bit closer uh, to Rome, um, what we would call high church practices. And he had an archbishop. Anyone know his archbishop's name? I mean, it's there in the notes, but his name was Laud, William Laud. And uh, he became a scourge of the Puritans, um, began persecuting them. Many of them fled the country to New England. 
um, and he wanted to move the church further away from Calvinism. Arminianism became more popular in England, um, and various high church practices were promoted. For example, in worship, instead of the uh, regulative principle of worship, we only uh, want to do what scripture gives us warrant to do. There was a more ornate liturgy um, based merely on church legislation. In governments, the Puritans were more either moderate Episcopalians, that means government by bishops, Presbyterians, government by elders, or uh, independents who wanted more independency for each church. But uh, William Laud was very strict Episcopalian. It must be by bishops. That's uh, divinely instituted, and uh, it's really not legitimate unless you have them. And then in doctrine, rather than Calvinist view of theology, more of an Arminian view of theology, and that would impact the, the view of the sacraments and other things too. Well, the tipping point was reached when Charles I decided to revise the Book of Common Prayer to be even, uh, uh, you know, less Calvinist or, or, you know, stronger in a Laudian direction, and not impose it on England, impose it on Scotland, um, which was further away from it. And he tried to do that in 1637. And when in St. Giles Kirk, the big church in Edinburgh, the, the, the priest began to read the prayers from the Book of Common Prayer, uh, there was a woman named Jenny Geddes, and she uh, realized this was not what the order of worship that they were used to. It sounded a lot more like the Roman Catholic Mass, although, to be fair, it was quite distant from the actual Roman Catholic Mass. Um, but she uh, got her stool, because back then you would bring your, church, your stool to church, um, didn't have pews or things like that, and she threw it at the priest, and that kind of is the beginning of a, a, a riot there, or opposition, public opposition to uh, such an imposition, and uh, wasn't only Jenny Geddes, uh, the, the whole people of Scotland, really, or uh, masses of them rose up in opposition to this imposition. They reaffirmed and expanded the National Covenant of Scotland, affirming their uh, Protestantism and opposition to bishops, and uh, then King Charles decided to enforce this by his armies, and that led to the bishops' wars, but King Charles lost, and the Scots won. A lot of them had been on the continent of Europe fighting in the Thirty Years' War and had military experience, and they, they defeated him twice. And not, the, not only did Charles I lose that battle and have to concede, all right, I'm not going to impose these things on you, but he also ran out of money. Now, where did the king get money from? Those, his kingdom? Who did he have to ask to get taxes, though? Parliament, right, right. The people had to give consent to taxation. I mean, this whole no representation without taxation, that was an English thing before it was an American thing. And he had tried to rule without government, uh, sorry, he tried to rule without parliament for 11 years. He didn't like parliament. He wanted to do things by himself, and he could do that. He didn't have to call parliament, but he did need them for taxes. And so he ran out of money, he needed parliament, and parliament had all of these grievances and reforms that had been building up over the last decade so that once they got called into uh, Parliament, they had a lot of work to do, and they had a lot of things they wanted the king to do. And part of that included stopping William Laud and protecting the church and uh, protecting it from these innovations and reforming it. And so one thing that they wanted to do was to call an assembly, uh, the Westminster Assembly. And they did so, quote, 
for the settling of the government and liturgy of the Church of England and clearing of the doctrine of said church from false aspirations and interpretations. Notice they're not conceding that the Church of England was, was um, in accordance with William Laud. They're saying this is a Calvinist church and doctrine, but we need an assembly to make it very clear that it is so. Um, and then also to reform its liturgy and government. And uh, the king did not like this idea. He never really gave it his consent, but the parliament went on ahead anyhow and called uh, about 120 divines. That's their word back then for theologians, for for ministers of the word. Uh, About 120 of them, they, uh, parliament, each kind of delegation from each county picked um, two uh, ministers to represent their county. I think one from each county in Wales, uh, maybe two from the Channel Islands that were chosen by the French stranger churches there. So you have a couple Huguenots. Um, and so they all, and four from London and two from each universities. And they, they gather uh, in London. Uh, can you imagine if, if the congressional delegation in America chose, you know, two pastors from each state to represent, uh, we'd end up with a much poorer quality, I think, uh, assembly than than they did in England at that time. But that's maybe another point. They assembled about 120 uh, ministers um, that were largely Puritan. Now, some who leaned more in a royalist direction did not become because the king was telling them not to come. So some like James Usher, who were very the similar in theology but different in politics stayed home because uh, the king was saying don't go to this assembly but uh, those who came were, were primarily uh, Puritans although they had some diversity with them and there were also 30 representatives from the English parliament initially they were going to revise the 39 articles to make it very clear you know what it said but then a few months later the solemn league and covenant was signed between England and Scotland because by this time the king was at war with Parliament. They had raised their armies, and now they were beginning to fight. And Parliament knew they needed allies, and so they wanted to ally themselves with Scotland to have the Scots join their side to fight against the king's forces. And so they made a solemn league and covenant. So this is the second covenant. There was a national covenant of Scotland. There's also a solemn league and covenant between England and Scotland. And this solemn league and covenant redirects the purpose of the Westminster Assembly from not just being an English thing, but for creating uniform standards of reformed uh, government, worship, and doctrine for England, Scotland, and Ireland, and Wales, you know, as part of that. Um, And that was then to be their task. And so as a consequence, some Scottish commissioners were sent to kind of give input to make sure that things were going to be Uh, okay on the Scottish end to give advice and so some of those men were most notably Alexander Henderson who wrote um, one of the covenants that is here I think the Solemn League but Alexander Henderson, George Gillespie, Samuel Rutherford and Robert Bailey. Now let me read just an excerpt from the Solemn League and Covenant to give you an idea of uh, what it was saying. So they would swear this. They would say that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly through the grace of God endeavor in our several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland and doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland, 
in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches and shall endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction in uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, directory of worship, and catechizing, that we and our posterity after us may, as brethren, live in faith and love, and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. Uh, It goes on to say that they also shall endeavor to extirpate, uh, to get rid of popery, prelacy, that is government by bishops and everything that came with that, superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness, whatever is found to be contrary to the sound doctrine and the power of godliness. And they also say we're also binding together to support the king. Now, you might find that a little odd. Aren't they fighting the king? Well, they were still wanting to support the authority of the king. They just didn't like all of these soldiers that were fighting for the king. Uh, They wanted to oppose what they saw as unlawful uh, impositions and defend themselves against these people who were attacking them, but they still uh, uh, professed to want to preserve and defend the king's majesty and person and authority, as well as the rights and privileges uh, of parliaments and liberties of the kingdoms. And, of course, that would be put to test. It's why some of the Presbyterians didn't want to execute the king uh, at the end of the war, but that gets us maybe a little beyond the point. So as they assembled in the Westminster Assembly, there were uh, Roman Catholic heirs that they wanted to distinguish themselves from. There were also uh, Arminian and and, uh, Episcopalian heirs that they wanted to distinguish themselves from. There were also, though, we might call low church heirs, you know, It was a pretty uh, chaotic time. A lot of people were saying, like, this is our chance now to to seize the day and to reform the country the way we want it to be. And so there are a lot of ideas coming around. And so there were antinomians, those who were saying Christians aren't really under the law in any respect. They don't have to obey the law. They're, They're justified. They're free. There were Anabaptists and those inspired by them. Uh, there were levelers, those who uh, really didn't believe in private property. There were uh, Socinians uh, who uh, denied the deity of Christ. You know, there were a variety of other um, errors that needed to be guarded against as well. Um, so the Westminster Assembly produced a directory for worship, a form of church government, this confession of faith, as well as shorter and larger catechisms uh, in the 1640s. Um, then it, it gets dissolved when Parliament gets dissolved by Cromwell. And unfortunately, it doesn't really survive as the standards for the Church of England and Ireland, but it does get maintained by the Church of Scotland, and then consequently Presbyterian churches uh, wherever they get established. Uh, any questions about the historical context? So this woman I mean, there might have been better ways to, to, to show opposition. I mean, uh, it wouldn't be a good example for a normal way of proceeding. It's a little disorderly. Um, but I have to appreciate the, the spirit. And it, obviously, it seems like she had a lot of... Um, she wasn't the only one doing it, that it became a public protest supported by the government and, and all of that. But a little, a little backwards, the, the way it happened. Um, I think it was appropriate for the, the for the nation and the church to resist these these impositions. 
um, as as impositions and an overturning of the uh, the church government and, and order that had been established um, up until that time. I'm getting beyond, so I'll stop there, but I do have an open question sometimes. Sure. What made it the right way to encourage things? I mean, we're not, we're normally <clears throat> fight with God's truth, not with weapons of this world. Right. And so I don't mean to distract our attention from this subject with my question. Right. No, I, I mean, it, again, it, it's also helpful to remember that Scotland and England were not united as one kingdom at this time, that these were two different kingdoms with their two different establishments. And, um, but yeah, it was a, a war of resistance or imposition to defend the, the liberties of the Church of Scotland and, and the people of Scotland uh, in this case. Um, and, and that's how they were, were seeing it, which is also why they signed the National Covenant as almost like a, not quite a declaration of independence, but you know, a declaration of this is our national stand our, um, on this position um, to, to bind together. And that happened before they actually went to war, before the fighting happened, committing themselves to that. All right, um, so how is the Westminster Confession of Faith used um, today? Um, like I said, it's used in Presbyterian churches throughout the world. Uh, today, there, I believe, are more Presbyterians in Mexico than there are in the United States. Uh, there's more Presbyterians in Brazil than there are in Scotland. Uh, there's more Presbyterians in South Korea than there are in all those four countries that I just mentioned combined. Uh, there are Presbyterians throughout the world that have translated the Confession of Faith, that hold to it uh, with uh, varying degrees of faithfulness, but um, often faithfully. And uh, that is uh, true in, in America as well. There's, a, of course, a mainline Presbyterian denomination that um, has it more symbolically in their book of confessions. Um, but there are confessional Presbyterian churches, like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that still maintain it as other uh, secondary doctrinal standard. Um, there have been a few American revisions uh, to the document over the years, mostly regarding church and state relations. Uh, we might uh, discuss those as we go through the Confession of Faith uh, as well. But it serves as a confession of faith, um, as a summary of biblical doctrine, and as a doctrinal standard. Um, it expresses what the church believes the Bible to teach. It articulates the difference between what it believes is truth and error. Um, church councils and courts, you know, our one purpose for them is to decide uh, disputes about the faith and uh, uh, doctrinal controversies. And um, these are a number that have already been addressed, you know, that are here in the confession. Uh, it's subordinate to scripture. It can be revised if it's found to be in error. Um, church members are not required to subscribe to it or to agree with everything that's in it, although we hope that would be the case, but you know, that's not a, a requirement. A profession of faith is more basic in its content, something more like the Nicene Creed or, of course, our membership vows, which you'll see uh, taken today. But uh, the church is bound to proclaim and defend the faith in its fullness, and that's more than what a new believer is expected to uh, profess. So it's good to have something more comprehensive like this confession of faith. 
Uh, the church is not infallible, but its councils and officers are divinely ordained help to direct and teach the saints and to shepherd the church and to guard against wolves. Um, so church officers are required to adopt and receive it as containing the system of doctrine containing, uh, taught in scripture. And so it's what you can expect the church to teach. And of course, uh, especially in this Sunday school series where we'll be uh, going through the confession of faith itself. Uh, and with that, well, let's go ahead and close in prayer and prepare ourselves for worship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your uh, word and your truth and your faithfulness throughout history to preserve it and to uh, use the work of your saints to articulate and uh, teach it. We pray that you would uh, use this work to edify us as well, uh, that we might grow in grace and uh, in our understanding of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.